This episode was recorded on the traditional lands of the Gadigal and Wangal people of the Eora Nation, the Darug people of the Darug Nation, and the Cherokee, Shawnee, and Chickasaw people. We acknowledge that across these different contexts, we are connected by histories of colonial violence and dispossession. We pay our respects to the elders of these lands, past and present. Welcome to A Clash of Critics, your scholarly podcast about George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. She's Mia, I'm Scott, and today we're looking at Chapter 29, Sansa 2, of A Game of Thrones. Here is the chapter summary according to a wiki of Ice and Fire. Sansa is enthralled by the tourney, especially the knights. So Gregor Clegane kills a new-made knight named Sir Hugh in a joust, and after a victory, Sir Loras Tyrell gives her a rose. During the feast that follows, Prince Joffrey is very courteous, but afterward he orders the Hound to escort Sansa back to her chambers. When the Hound notices Sansa is avoiding looking at his burned face, he forces her to look and tells her how he acquired it. Alright, so for those of you listening to this episode when we actually release it, you'll probably have noticed that this episode is slightly out of order from the rest. That is because uh, we are joined by a very special guest today, Dr. Shiloh Carroll. Welcome Shiloh. Hi, thanks for having me. Shiloh works with fantasy medievalisms, particularly in A Song of Ice and Fire, but also the works of Neil Gaiman, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and other fantasy literature. So basically, the best novels and the best TV show ever made. (laughs) Her book, Medievalism, in A Song of Ice and Fire and A Game of Thrones, is available now, and Where Shadow Meets Grendel, Medievalism in the Works of Neil Gaiman, is expected in 2023. Shiloh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you first came to this series, A Song of Ice and Fire. So I grew up reading every bit of fantasy literature that I could get my hands on, from like C.S. Lewis to Tamara Pierce, Mercedes Lackey, Patricia Reed, even Anne McCaffrey, even though I didn't realize that the Pern books weren't fantasy until later, because they had dragons, so of course they weren't fantasy. (laughs) Um, So around the time HBO announced that they had picked up Game of Thrones, which I guess was around 2010 or so, 2009-2010, the books were brought to my attention and they seemed cool. So I went out and bought the first one and then about 100 pages later I went back and bought the rest of them, which at that point was up to A Feast for Crows. And then I did my dissertation on fantasy medievalism and leaned really heavily on A Song of Ice and Fire. And then turn that dissertation into my first book, and here we are. All right, obligatory follow-up question then. (laughs) Who is your favorite A Song of Ice and Fire character, and why? Oh god, I've changed favorite characters so many times, depending on what topic I'm interested in and how many times I've read the books by that point. Uh, But right now, I have to say Brienne, um, because I love how her story strikes this balance between the grim dark and the romantic and how she sees how bad the world is but tries to make it better yeah brian's a character that i i'm really looking forward to exploring more as we do this podcast because i've only read basically a chapters once and i feel like my reaction to those chapters are going to be very different the second time around because i have a very different relationship with that character that's that's a good question how do you feel about those chapters which is kind of wandering for a very long time because I feel like when I reread them I will appreciate them more than I did the first time which was not very much. 
No, I totally ag- agree. I think my first time through, I was also like, okay, so we're, we're wandering through the Riverlands and you're never going to find Sansa here. <laughs> we know Sansa's <laughs> and Arya are both really far away. Um, but I think getting more familiar with um, the tropes of romance, uh, medieval romance helped that a lot because the knights do just sort of go wandering off on their quests and it's not just about finding the grail it's about the friends they made along the way (laughs) (laughs) it's about all the the smaller encounters they have and how that develops their characters and teaches them lessons and stuff and Brienne encapsulates that very well All right, so today's episode will be the long overdue topic of medievalism and specifically how Sansa 2 sets up Martin's ideas about romantic medievalism versus barbaric medievalism. Uh, So to start off, Shiloh, what the heck is medievalism? (laughs) (laughs) And what do you mean by barbaric and and romantic versions of it? So we start off with, in order to kind of lay the groundwork and contextualize, start off with the medieval which is that actual historical time period between about 500 and 1500-ish. You know, people vacillate on exact dates. Um, But, you know, good round numbers there, 500 to 1500. And all of the literature and the culture and art and politics that were happening in that time period, and we usually think of it as primarily as Europe and maybe parts of the Middle East and Northern Africa, That's not accurate either, but that's what we've got. (laughs) And then medievalism is the ways in which people living after that historical time period have sort of reworked and redefined and recast and basically papered over the Middle Ages with their own issues and wishes and needs. Uh, For example, immediately afterward, when people had decided the Middle Ages were over and the Enlightenment had begun... (laughs) They talked about the Middle Ages as this time of ignorance and superstition and a loss of culture, while they, as no longer medieval people, were reclaiming their classical heritage and coming up out of that darkness. Um, Later artists and historians sort of pushed back against that and started arguing that actually the Middle Ages were a time of harmony and people having defined places and a connection to their productivity and everyone who's happier and more innocent. Neither of those are true, obviously, (laughs) but you can definitely see how they serve the needs of the people who invented them. And then we come up into uh, about the 1970s, which is when medievalism studies really started to become a thing. Um, Umberto Eco defined what he calls the 10 little middle ages to divide medievalism into types. And they're all useful in their own way, but I generally boil them down to two, the barbaric age medievalism and the romantic medievalism. Barbaric age medievalism is when we look at the middle ages as dirty and illiterate and full of rampaging, well, barbarians. Um, Echo defined it as a shaggy medievalism that simplified the Middle Ages to ignorance and superstition. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, there's the romantic medievalism, which foregrounds things like chivalry and princesses and pretty, pretty castles. Um, So our definitions of medievalism have, of course, progressed and evolved since Echo, but those are part of the foundation of the field of study. 
um, Tyson Pugh and Angela Jane Weasel have pretty, pretty thoroughly defined it as, and I'm directly quoting here, the art, literature, scholarship, avocational pastimes, and sundry forms of entertainment and culture that turn to the Middle Ages for their subject matter or inspiration, and in doing so, explicitly or implicitly, by comparison or by contrast, comment on the artist's contemporary socio-cultural milieu. Putting that a bit more simply, <laughs> uh, medievalist texts, whether they're whether those texts are books or films or TV shows, paintings, games, whatever, are those that use medieval tropes and aesthetics, but explore very modern issues that we just project back onto the Middle Ages. If we wanted to really, really split hairs, uh, we can also divide out neo-medievalism, which can be a text that got its idea of the Middle Ages from another medievalist text, like Tolkien or Sir Walter Scott, um, or it can be a text that plays with purposeful anachronism like Monty Python and the Holy Grail or A Knight's Tale, both of which are delightful. <laughs> they, are. they are. I'm getting a lot of uh, resonances with Orientalism here, actually, in terms of uh, production and knowledge about a time period and how all these various different industries are uh, creating this sort of feedback loop. Absolutely. Feedback loops are big in medievalism. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so listening to that, I go to my cultural studies mindset of like, oh, yeah, so, like those citational practices that are like reproducing or performing the, um, this, this idea. And I think like certainly in the past, I have done the same thing where we think about this like thousand year period mm -hmm. as a monolith or maybe a couple of different monolithic perspectives, which... Living today, like I'm spending a lot of time on TikTok these days, as I think many people are, and people are romanticizing the early 2000s. <laughs> so, so if we're talking like, you know, a decade or two ago of becoming this like, oh yeah, it was such a specifically characterized time period, but yeah, 500 to 1500 C, yeah, it's about the same. <laughs> it's like one, one stretch of a particular type. Um, of life in all these different countries, all the same. Um, so yeah, we've got this like popular consciousness that's um, being engaged with um, this idea. And I do want to say here that I, I recognize that a lot of fantasy writers have either studied history or are actual historians. So off the top of my head, one of my favorite fantasy authors is the late Sarah Warnicke, um, who wrote under the pen name Sarah Douglas. So she's an Australian author. Um, and she was a lecturer of medieval history at La Trobe University here. So there are definitely people who kind of have a, a more primary research background that is informing the way that they're constructing these worlds. Uh, but I would say that the majority of writers are working with an idea that comes, as you say, from other medievalist texts, which, you know, sometimes might be uncritically adopting a genre convention or anachronisms and sometimes they're playing with it but ultimately they're still performing a particular hegemonic idea of the middle ages and upon your recommendation i did go through and read parts of pew and weasel's book medievalism oh it's very good it's great i'm gonna go through and read all the bits that i haven't read yet <laughs> <laughs> um but one thing that i came across which makes total sense but i'd never really thought about before is that just as today we've got this like range of stories that are drawing inspiration and sometimes playing with um, a particular idea of the middle ages 
authors throughout history also had their own popular understandings of that time period. So they give an example of like Renaissance writers like Edmund Spencer and Shakespeare, who both engage with a particular view of medieval history as this like idyllic, innocent time. And they played with that history for effect. So Shakespeare might take a real historical um, medieval figure and maybe change the history a little bit so it suits the story and kind of play with that. So I'd never really thought that like, oh yeah, the idea that we've got in our head other people in history also had an idea in their head it might not have been the same but they also were engaging with it both uncritically and like really purposefully to play with that the same way that we do today um so we can definitely think of medievalist and neo-medievalist texts as these lively objects that they're not just reflecting a history um with you know different degrees of accuracy uh but reproducing and contributing to this kind of assemblage of ideas and tropes in the popular imaginary Absolutely. Yeah, we've, it's layers. We have piled on hundreds and hundreds of years of, I don't want to say misconceptions, because that's not the the point of medievalism, is it you got this piece of history wrong. Hmm. Uh, although that can be fun sometimes too. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's really about what are you what are you doing with this particular trope and why mm. and how does it serve the narrative and the, the cultural moment that you're in? Mm. Well, we love that question. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's zero in on Sansa 2 now. I, I think it's a, it's a damn near perfect choice for this topic, actually. <laughs> why we skipped seven chapters ahead of where we're at in our recording <laughs> schedule. <laughs> You have the pageantry and the splendor of the tawny. You have radiant armor and flowers performatively gallant princes and knights and of course the yellow silk curtains turning the whole world gold for Sansa I thought that was a nice little touch there but we also have a drunken king making a scene and and a young girl unflinchingly uh, witnessing her first death uh, first pointless death and of course the hound confronting Sansa with his scars. So Shiloh, uh, did you want to begin unpacking the romance and the barbaric medievalism in this chapter? Sure. So I think Sansa 2 in particular, um, which is one reason that when Mia said, hey, when do you want to come on? I went, Sansa. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And this chapter in particular, I think, is a showcase of Martin's particular brand of medievalism, which has this tendency to set up romantic medievalism and then knock it back down with what he claims is a more realistic view but is really just barbaric age medievalism in plate armor so we start with sansa like you said looking at the world through golden curtains and just drinking in all of this splendor of the knights and the banners and the crowds and she has all these expectations for tourneys that she's gotten from her stories and her songs which is sort of in in universe medievalism too because it's a romanticized view of their history but she watches the the tourney and practices performing her role as a noble lady and the death of the veil knight whose name she doesn't even know notwithstanding everything seems perfect and of course there's hints even in the first half of the chapter that things aren't as perfect as she thinks they are we just have to be able to look past her pov and the romantic filter to recognize them. But Martin really stacks the deck against Sansa being able to do that just yet. (laughs) Uh, Partly because some of the hints we only pick up because we've been in Ned's POV, and partly because this whole spectacle is designed to hammer home a romantic ideal of 
idea of chivalry. Just look at Loris. <laughs> Sansa had never seen anyone so beautiful. His plate was intricately fashioned and enameled as a bouquet of a thousand different flowers, and his snow-white stallion was draped in a blanket of wet and red and white roses. After each victory, Sir Loris would remove his helm and ride slowly around the fence, and finally pluck a single white rose from the blanket and toss it to some fair maiden in the crowd. I mean, how can we expect an 11-year-old girl who's dreamed of scenes like this her whole life to take a step back and go, actually, this is all fake and performative and is covering up <laughs> serious toxic masculinity and violence against women? It was just a young girl watching The Bachelor. <laughs> <laughs> but that sort of return for rea to reality, or, you know, Martin's idea of reality, is what she has Sandor for. Uh, Sandor Clegane stomps into the fading glory of the day after the feast and a loud public fight between Cersei and Robert and proceeds to tear down her ideas about the world and even herself because he's a jerk, but also because he also used to believe in these things and he doesn't anymore. Sandor is the one who explains to her that the ideals of knighthood are a lie. Um, as Emmett put it in the Not A Cast episode on this chapter, Sandor takes his personal story of the abuse he suffered at the hands of his brother and turns it into an implication against all of Westerosi culture because they made him a knight, even though he's a monster. So his cynical view is that knighthood as an institution and society in general are fundamentally broken and rotten. But although this is supposed to look cynical, the way Martin writes Westerosi society doesn't really push back against that. It, he's more right than cynical. There are some individuals like Sansa and Brienne who try to live up to their own expectations against the world, but mostly everyone in these books kind of sucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, the, the fight between Cersei and Robert, I almost I was very tempted to go down a whole different tangent here and just like talk about the food in this <laughs> chapter because that's where I always want to go I I love food writing so much and oh, the food porn is glorious in this chapter yes I mean before recording we talked about Martin's not great writing of sex he more than makes up for it in his writing of food I am obsessed with his writing of food <laughs> Um, and I think like that that just that scene is such a great metaphor for everything that's happening where you're kind of absorbed in this wonderful food writing and you're just like getting hungry and then all of a sudden you're like taken back to reality by this drunken outburst that's happening and you're like, oh, okay, this <laughs> this could have been this beautiful, wonderful romantic feast, but now it's actually just a drunken king. But there are a few points in the chapter that also really stood out to me as these indicators of Sansa's very limited way of seeing the world at this point of time. So Sansa, like everyone, is filtering the world and the court through what she knows. And in this case, that's mostly stories and legends. Um, so Sansa's understanding of knighthood is informed by how knights become narrativized in history retellings. And, you know, if we take a genealogical approach to analyzing these history retellings, we can think about how particular norms and ideas become amplified through this storytelling in ways that will be resisted and sometimes inverted as the series progresses. But Sansa's not in a place at the moment to really do that kind of critical reading of the histories that she has. So the first point I want to highlight for what it tells us about Sansa's social world is the way that the chapter tells us who Sansa knows and who Sansa doesn't know. So Sansa knows figures from legends and during the tournament she's kind of 
making notes of particular names as she goes. And, you know, we're told that there are these younger men and they haven't done great deeds yet. Big, big yet. Um, but Sansa and Jane believe that one day the Seven Kingdoms will come to know their names. So that's like this future projection. Um, and then just after this, we get the scene where Sansa is recounting the first death that she's ever witnessed, this young knight of the Vale. And as you say, Sansa's not giving us a name. She's forgotten the name already. And what makes her really sad about it is the fact that his name will be forgotten. No songs will be sung about him. That's what's really tragic for her as opposed to the death itself. And she kind of justifies it to herself. Like she doesn't know this man. If it was someone she knew, she'd be sad. But actually what's sad in this case is he will not be immortalized. The glory of knighthood here is purely the capacity for one's deeds to become immortalized through storytelling. So then a little later in the chapter, Sansa meets Peter Baelish and she doesn't recognize him. Um, and this is something I hadn't really thought about in previous readings, but I'm reading the enhanced edition of the books this time. And the enhanced edition has a note in it that says a month and a half have passed since Sansa first arrived at court. Her failure to recognize one of the leading men of the court shows how isolated she and Aya are from her father's day-to-day -day business. And this is a really interesting observation. Potentially what's even more interesting to me in reading this is after he's introduced to her, we don't get this kind of internal like, oh, now, you know, Peter Baelish, that's right. I know him because of blah, blah, blah. She kind of just is introduced to him and that's it. Um, so we're assuming that not only does she not know him by face, but he's not a significant figure to her in any way um, by name either. So we're getting a pretty clear picture of the privileged position that knights hold in Sansa's world as opposed to these other kind of characters that really are probably much more important in the world <laughs> that she now occupies. And then that gets complicated by her interaction with Sandor Clegane. So Sansa names him Sir Sandor, <laughs> which he immediately dismisses. Uh, and then we get the whole thing about, you know, his brother's a knight and he's not gallant and Sandor mocks her and then confronts her with the reality of the death of the knight that she's already forgotten the name of. And I like that he kind of brings that reality of, you know, this this young boy really was a fool. He had no money. He had no squire. He had no one to help him. Uh, and because of that, he had a gap in his armor and that was taken advantage of by Gregor. So as you say, this is all kind of leading Sandor to very explicitly dismiss this romantic view of knighthood that Sansa has. But in this chapter, at least, when Sansa agrees with him, she says that Gregor was no true knight. So she's still clinging to this idea that there are true knights out there. There is definitely a true knight. He just, you know, it was a flaw in the system. The institution of knighthood is definitely still okay. <laughs> We haven't deconstructed that yet. There's just a few flaws where sometimes people are misattributed uh, as knights and, um, you know, but the institution's fine. We can't, we can't threaten that. And, you know, we, in, in, in today's world, we get people making the same arguments about many institutions as well. And Sansa will grow as the series goes on. But I found that kind of reframing of knighthood for her to be interesting. Oh yeah, she's no true Scotsmaning the heck out of this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... As you say, Shiloh, barbaric medievalism certainly seems to triumph a lot over the romantic, in, in, particularly in this chapter, but also largely across the series. You know, it's, it's the characters we would point to as prominent figures embodying barbaric medievalism. You know, they seem to be more common. There seems to be more of them. Um, they tend to outlive those who espouse the opposite viewpoints or... Um, or try to adhere to those romantic tropes or ideals. 
Um, but w- you mentioned not a cast, and one of the things that I really love about that podcast and Jeff and Emmett's analysis is how they they push back against these kind of readings of the story as straight, blunt, grimdark in that in that respect. Tywin outlives Ned, but Ned's model of leadership, his honourable creed, uh, which I would say probably ties into those romantic tropes a bit more. Um, his his honourable creed to an approach to leadership ultimately proved stronger in terms of continuing to protect some of his children and motivating his former bannerman to march against tyranny later in the story. Um, and then we get Brian's steadfast adherence to knightly virtue, um, yeah, which has ripple effects, including uh, on Jamie's behaviour himself. We'll see if that lasts, of course. <laughs> um, so I do wonder if there's something more complex going on with these romantic tropes, I guess, uh, and the way they're being used in the story. If not in this particular chapter, because I do broadly agree with the analysis of Sansa 2 here, and perhaps not even in Sansa's overall journey, um, but across the wider story. So romanticism is presented as quite dangerous. I think that is a, probably a view we should still agree with. Um being too romantic about the world and how it operates can be a dangerous thing. Um, and in many ways, it is still presented predominantly as a foolish and naive, naive thing across all these characters, as, as were mentioned. Um, but isn't there also a case for it saying that being a knight of the songs is difficult? And, and that is why it is ideal. You know, if, if being, you know, to, to use the way in which this chapter focuses particularly on knighthood, um, you know, if being a true knight, a virtuous knight, were easy, why sing songs about them at all? Kind of deal. There's lots to unpack in that question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I do, I mean, I, yeah, I talk a lot about there's the romantic and the barbaric, and here's George kind of mixing them together, kind of, sort of. But it is very complicated, and some of the way that we have to talk about it is a little oversimplifying, just because there's a lot going on in these books, and uh, unpacking them takes a lot of words and we don't have you know six hours to really (laughs) close read this whole chapter and and dig out every little bitty nuance um but overall i do think that he starts out really heavy-handed with the cynicism and the barbaric medievalism and stuff but does seem to be aiming towards a more positive kind of view of the world in the sense that it's less about projecting out and expecting the world to conform to those ideas for you. You have to do it yourself. So we have Brienne, absolutely, who 100% sees the world as kind of the horrible, monstrous place that it is. Look at all the stuff that's happened to her. And yet she still embodies those ideals that she believes in and even Sansa later she's like okay people aren't going to be the way that I think they should be but I can still be courteous and be a a real lady regardless of how they're treating me and so it's hard to say without you know the last two books in the series we're kind of um, we're trying to kind of Monday morning quarterback this at halftime essentially (laughs) um but it does feel like at the end it's going to be a more uplifting than the opening kind of has been, especially with Martin having said that it will be bittersweet. If he was truly going for Grimdark, which I don't believe he is, 
it would just be horrible at the end. There would be no sweet. It would all be terrible. <laughs> Everybody would die. And we'd just be like, if I may quote from the Princess Bride, Jesus, Grandpa, would you read me this thing for? <laughs> Okay, um, Charlotte, I'm going to ask the inevitable question now. Uh, I'm sure you know what I'm about to ask, but we have had this conversation about romantic versus barbaric medievalism. Now, so what? Why does this matter? So I think that what's happening in this chapter in particular, I mean, really the books in general, but it's super evident in this chapter, is the tension between the romantic and the barbaric medievalism And the narrative has a tendency to come down on the side of barbaric medievalism being more realistic, while romantic medievalism is for overly naive or idealistic people. And so what can happen is this cycle, um, Helen Young calls it a feedback loop, where people pick up ideas about the Middle Ages from medievalist fantasy, like Song of Ice and Fire, and then decide that a Song of Ice and Fire is realistic because it matches those ideas and then demand a similar level of so-called historical accuracy from other medievalist texts but their benchmarks for historical accuracy are really based on well medievalist fantasy and kind of a gut feeling that this feels right this feels like what the middle ages must have been like not really on any kind of historical expertise um, and with A Song of Ice and Fire in general, it or in particular, it doesn't help that Martin himself is out there constantly talking up how much more realistic and historically accurate A Song of Ice and Fire is than other medievalist fantasy. So specific to Sansa's storyline, what we get is this idea that idealism and naivete need to be literally beaten out of her. And a lot of readers hate her for being young and stupid, and some of that is misogyny. Some. (laughs) (laughs) You know, a little bit of it. Most of it. All of it. Um, but (laughs) But some of it comes from the text, where everything she believes and hopes for is shown to be wrong and overly idealistic to the point of actual danger to herself and her family. But, and something I keep emphasizing when I talk about this, is this is fiction. And Martin built this world this way. (laughs) And we have to keep in mind that he invented it, that there's nothing in there that has to be in there, except that this is the way he wants to tell his story. And I think it's so important to remember that. And when a knee-jerk reaction is to defend something kind of problematic because that's just how it was back then, to ask ourselves back when... Because this is a fantasy world, not an accurate one-to-one depiction of any point in history. And I have actually had people say back in Westeros times, and I am like, sweetie, (laughs) 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 that's not a thing. (laughs) Yeah, um, I I know you have some thoughts on this, Mia, um, but I don't think you cover this. But uh, when it comes to that undercurrent of realism that seems to be applied um, to representations of medievalism that Martin is adhering to here and and projecting out and other authors taking it on. It also um, has that feedback loop with the misogyny of Sansa. It also has a feedback loop loop in terms of how we understand history of race, 
history of other cultures as well. Um, so that it sort of maps onto the Orientalist tropings as well that, that Martin uses for the Eastern uh, cultures, but also the sheer lack of anyone but white people for most of Westeros as well. And that maps onto how we tend to still understand the history of Europe as well, uh, which is being problematized by a lot of research recently as well. So it has that effect too. And definitely because Martin started writing these in the probably in the early 90s um, with the Game of Thrones coming out in the late 90s. Like you were saying, research has advanced a lot and it's entirely possible that the stuff he was reading was telling him that it was primarily a white culture in the European Middle Ages. And whether he is continuing to kind of read and do research and keep up with it and if that will maybe if maybe he can slide westeros a little bit more multicultural in the <laughs> in the winds of winter i don't know we'll see mm. so when i was preparing for this episode um coming to the inevitable idea of like okay so what are the, what are some of the issues with medievalism and medievalism as like how can we do real medievalism? How can we make it realistic? <laughs> uh, I returned to a lecture I did last year on media fandoms. And side note, in looking through my lecture slides, I found that not only did I quote your book, Shiloh, I also quoted <laughs> your chapter from the edited collection, HBO's Original Voices. I was like, I didn't even remember doing that. <laughs> but there you go. Oh my. That, that one definitely uh, took David and Dan to task. <laughs> <laughs> But one of the ideas that I talked about with students at the time, and I think it's this is a kind of nice little case study, particularly when kind of coming back to that idea you were talking about before, about like when you're like the idea of medievalism, medievalism looking at it is like, well, what, what are you doing with it? Not just is it real, is it not? But like, what are you doing? One of the things that we talked about was sexual violence. And as I'm sure... Our listeners know that is one of the many things that come up as a that was what it's like back then as an mm. excuse for like why it's okay to portray particular things. So in um, the, the lecture and the tutorials, we were talking about the kind of conversations that were happening around the TV adaptation, Game of Thrones. Um, but these do apply to the books as well. And a lot of the discussions, particularly around season four and five of Game of Thrones, seem to kind of go on one side, these depictions are gratuitous, they're exploitative, they're harmful. And then on the other side, they're realistic. That's what things were like back then. Therefore, it's good. Now, I'm I'm not on principle against graphic representations of sexual violence. Um, I think they can have value in particular contexts. So the idea then is to say, okay, what is the value? What can they do as opposed to just representing something that we think it was like back then? So for that, I turn to an essay by Deborah Faraday, uh, which was Game of Thrones, Rape Culture and Feminist Fandom. I'm just going to read a, a quote here. So, quote, the stories we tell about rape are slippery. They tell us a great deal about society's attitude towards gender, sexuality, violence, property, and family relationships. It is particularly productive to analyze the relationship between, quote, real rape and representations of rape at a current historical moment when media representations are deeply enmeshed with cultural practices through which we make sense of everyday lives and of lived experience, including the experience of living in societies where the ever-present threat of sexual violence is lived alongside a proliferation of media images of violated female bodies. 
Game of Thrones is a significant case study in this regard then, since it brings together fan discourses and feminist critique in the same digital spaces, and indeed reveals that fan and feminist identities are not separate, but they coexist and intertwine. As a fantastic text about rape, fantastic here being fantasy, um, it is a particularly rich case study since the fantastic as a genre is historically a space in which possible, in brackets, emancipatory or violent futures are proposed, explored and brought into tension with one another. So there is an argument here that representations of sexual violence in fiction are essentially capable of providing an arena for social discussion and that fantasy space in particular provides opportunities for imagining different possibilities and arguments. And we can extend this to other forms of representation as well. So we've mentioned race, um, also things like queer characters and their experiences in fictional worlds. These are all kind of creating this, this imaginative space for thinking about different possibilities. But that value is only realised when the fictional and fantastical context is understood and acknowledged. <laughs> so... <laughs> If these representations are viewed as an uncritical representation of history, not only is that an accurate and a weird understanding of fantasy, it also assumes that creators like Martin aren't trying to do something more interesting and thoughtful with it. Even if we acknowledge that Martin does tend to say, you know, this is what history was like to a certain extent, it's, it is to me weird to be a fan of Martin and assume that he's not doing something more interesting than telling history with dragons in it. Like, that's, <laughs> that's... He's a fantasy writer. Surely you want him to be doing something more interesting and not reduce his creative output to a retelling of something. Just, you know, file off the serial numbers and stick a dragon in and we're done. <laughs> and ice zombies. Don't forget those. Of course. How could I forget ice zombies? <laughs> Did you have any follow-up to that, Charlie? No, I, I generally agree with that statement that it's really reductive to Martin's work. And I mean, I say a lot of stuff that people would take as like really harsh criticism, probably, but I really do love these books. And I think that going, this is the way Westeros is because that's the way history is. And we can't possibly do anything different in this fantasy work. <laughs> Is, is really just detrimental to the way that you can read the books and is kind of insulting to Martin as an, audit, as an artist. Yes, be critical of the things you love, guys. Um, and and kind of on that topic, though, I know we've kind of reached the end of this episode, but Charlotte, I was kind of interested in hearing more about your work with Buffy and Neil Gaiman, <laughs> if, that's, if that's different from the way in which you've approached medievalism in A Song of Ice and Fire. Buffy is 100% different because it's not trying for anything medieval. Hmm. I think there's a lot of times when they don't, when the writers didn't even realize that what they were doing was medievalism. And then sometimes you have, you know, Crusader Knights. <laughs> <laughs> With Gaiman, what's super fascinating, as I'm, what I'm finding as I'm writing the book, is that he has a tendency to pull from everything he can get his hands on from like classical mythology to celtic fairy lore to everything else in between and just kind of mash it all up and stick it together and go what would happen <laughs> if odin <laughs> was in 20th century middle america <laughs> and just come up with just 
fascinatingly well-written stories about that. And again, he's most of the time not attempting any kind of historical realism at all. Like, he's not running around going, this is the most accurate depiction of Odin we have ever. <laughs> but then sometimes we get his Beowulf retelling. And I don't think he's, if I'm trying to remember from the script book, and it's been a little bit since I've read it, I think it was Roger Avery that actually said, we're trying to tell the, the original story behind the poem. And boy, when I write that chapter, I'm going to have all kinds of stuff to say about that. <laughs> All right, I guess we'll leave it there for this chapter. Thank you so much for joining us, Shiloh. Absolutely. This is so much fun. <laughs> Shiloh's book, Medievalism in a Song of Ice and Fire and a Game of Thrones, is available now. You can also find her essay series on medievalism and pop culture at shilohcarroll.wordpress.com. Links will be provided in our episode description. So a quick note before we wrap up. Uh, when we first began this reboot of The Clash of Critics, we had both just submitted our PhDs. Uh, we had more time to begin new projects than maybe we do now. Um, so we both do have quite significant work and life commitments at the moment, which has made our current recording schedule a little bit of a challenge. So we're going to be taking a break after this episode to basically rethink our structure uh, moving forward. And when we do return we'll be coming back to analysis starting with chapter 22, I 2. If you enjoyed this episode, consider pledging to our Patreon at patreon.com slash tropewatchers. Pledges start at a dollar a month and help with our ongoing running costs. If you don't have cash to spare, you can also support us by rating us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Or send us to a friend who you think would enjoy the podcast. If you're a fan of A Clash of Critics, be sure to tune into our flagship podcast, Tropewatchers, the podcast about pop culture and why it matters. Our website is tropewatchers.com slash A Clash of Critics. We are on social media at A Clash of Critics, and you can email us at clashofcritics at gmail.com. See you next time.